At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. Filling in for Shirley Leung this week, I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store, senior opinion writer and columnist here at The Globe. It's January of a presidential election year, and that can only mean one thing. Primary season is here. With President Biden running for re-election, all eyes are on the Republican race. Although, with former President Trump so far ahead in the polls, makes you wonder why the other candidates are even bothering. Will Trump continue to dominate? Can one of his primary rivals stage an upset? To answer that, today I'm joined by some experts here at the Boston Globe to get their takes. James Pendle is a political reporter. Kareen Hajar is an opinion writer. And Scott Lehigh is an opinion columnist. It's great to have you all here. Thank you. Nice to be here. Good to see everyone. Scott, I want to start with you. We have a former president that is leading the GOP contest as if he were an incumbent. Yet he has been impeached twice. He lost uh, the presidency in 2020. He's facing 91 criminal counts, plus a lot of very serious civil trials. How different is this GOP primary from anyone you've covered before? Uh, in a macro sense, it's night and day, really. This is this is a very, very different, hugely different. Um, in, in Trump, as you say, we've got this weird collision of uh, of campaign leading candidate and um, uh, some very serious allegations and, and trials on, on upcoming trials on criminality. So you've got that. But also in terms of New Hampshire, New Hampshire is always a state that's prided itself on um, really getting up close and personal with a candidate. Um, you know, candidates usually are required to come up and and subject themselves to questions and do what they call town hall meetings and uh, really, you know, take take questions, really be be vetted by the voters of New Hampshire. That isn't doesn't obtain at all. Trump, he's not debating. Uh, he does occasional sort of celebrity fly-in events to New Hampshire, but but he is largely absent from the process. So yeah. I would say it's a it's a really different uh, look for New Hampshire. So, James, you have written that if you squint, this year actually feels very similar to previous years. What do you mean? Well, you got to really, really, really squint. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> uh, look, look uh, this is an unusual race. Scott's right. This is really the first time since the 1890s when you have two incumbent presidents, basically, 
uh, running for their party nominations. And so up until like the last month, you know, Donald Trump's dominant lead, particularly in New Hampshire and nationwide in every early state, has meant that this is not looking like a normal campaign. It's not, I don't want to say the word coronation, but it's more of like a done deal. Though the surge of Nikki Haley does seem to give some regular contour to this race. Donald Trump is now a front runner, not the obvious inevitable nominee. I think he's still likely to be the nominee, let's be clear. Uh, but now we have an insurgent candidate going the traditional path of New Hampshire, which is sort of the moderate Republican slash independent voters, which are more majority, the, the plurality of voters in, in New Hampshire. They will play an outsized play, an outsized role uh, in this state. Uh, and then you have, you know, Ron DeSantis out in Iowa trying to play with evangelicals. There is some normal lanes. There have been no lanes, uh, as we typically talk about in terms of where they fit ideologically or personality-wise up until the last, say, last month or so. Uh, but, you know, we just had a Boston Globe poll come out earlier this week showing that, once again, Donald Trump is still up by 20 points over Nikki Haley. So whatever surge she had uh, seems to have leveled off a little bit. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you can sort of see how this is not just a, 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 a not a, not just a done deal. Yeah, and and speaking of Nikki Haley, Kareen, Trump is polling at about sixty percent of the vote nationally, and everyone else seems about ten percent or less. But as James was pointing out, she's doing a lot better in New Hampshire, at least marginally better, right? She's she's still far behind Trump, but she's ahead of her opponents. Karine, do you think she'll be able to pull away from the pack in a way that is meaningful in New Hampshire? I think it's all going to depend on New Hampshire. That's certainly the campaign strategy. Um, and I've talked to Governor Sununu, who endorsed Nikki Haley, and he's saying, you know, he's really confident that she's going to be able to pull away in New Hampshire and that she's going to be able to beat Trump. Um, and at the very least, even if she doesn't beat Trump, uh, doing very well in New Hampshire could give her the momentum to go into South Carolina, her home state, and have a great showing and kind of break the narrative that Trump is a done deal, as James was saying. So that's that's their strategy. And it's really all going to come down to New Hampshire. And I think folks like Sununu and uh, even Chris Christie has been going around saying that he's not so sure about Trump's polling numbers. He thinks that there might be a reverse sensation to what happened in 2016, where people were kind of underpolled on their support for Trump. Christie and folks like Sununu think that that support is being overestimated in this election. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But for Haley and for the others, it all depends on New Hampshire. Scott, you recently wrote about Chris Christie um, pretty positively. What do you think about him as a candidate? Well, I do think he he is right where he says he's the only one who is really going straight at Trump on the issues that um, that people should be concerned about. And Chris Christie's got a high negative because people don't want to hear Republicans do not want to hear um, nasty things or or tough things said about Donald Trump. But I think this race, I, I, my feeling on it is that if you're no one is no late breaking voter is going to break for Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is not a ship that you easily get aboard. He's essentially a submarine at this point. And and I so I don't feel like he gets any of the late break. And I think a lot of this race comes down to the undeclared you, in New Hampshire. You don't you don't have you can go in as an independent and take a Republican or Democrat 
Democratic primary ballot. And I, I don't think any of those people, obviously, are going to break for Trump and the undecideds. And as I say, there are not there are not a lot of undecided voters, but I don't think any of them will will, will break for Trump. So I, I think this race is going to Trump is is currently north of 40. I think this race ends in the 30s and as a single digit race with with um, Trump and Nikki Haley within, as they say, single digits of one another. And I expect that will play as a as a pretty good showing for her. And then at least for her, as Green says, it, it will be on to South Carolina and a, and a showdown there. So um, I think it's going to be a really interesting vote. And I think that the the storyline that this is uh, this is all you know, the Trump has New Hampshire wrapped up is is just wrong. So, Karine, what do you think about Chris Christie? He's polling at about 10 percent uh, in New Hampshire. He has told us, the Ed Board, that he's very serious about this campaign. But what do you think about the idea of a, a, a coalition anti-Trump candidate? Can he be that candidate? I think that he can be that candidate in terms of clearing the field for others. He's thrown a lot of effective punches at Trump. Uh, he's the guy saying all of the mean things about Trump that nobody wants to say um, and kind of softening the blow for the other candidates. So Nikki Haley can kind of sneak in behind him and say, well, maybe Trump shouldn't have spent as much money, whereas Christie's going in and, and throwing a direct punch. You know, this guy threatened the Constitution and this is why I'm running. I think Christie might have to start stepping back and thinking if he's helping Trump more than hurting him. Uh, certainly that decision is up to Christie, but in New Hampshire specifically where, you know, other other candidates who are surging like Haley, her candidacy and nomination really depends on winning New Hampshire. And, you know, the strategy is to go on and use that momentum to win other primaries. I think that Christie really needs to ask himself if he is blocking an anti-Trump candidate and staying in the race in New Hampshire. Right now, he's taking away about 10 percent of voters from another candidate. And based on the interviews I've had with voters up in New Hampshire, it looks like a lot of those folks would be open to voting for Haley more than anyone else if he did drop. Uh, and given that that's the main goal of his campaign, which is to beat Donald Trump, it might be worth stepping back and thinking, am I helping the guy more than hurting him? Uh, so I think that Christie's going to have to make some hard decisions so this brings up a question for me, and I will throw it to Scott and James to to give your thoughts on this. If you're talking about coal, uh, forming a, a coalition behind an anti-Trump candidate, is there really an anti-Trump candidate in the GOP race besides Chris Christie? I mean, you have Nikki Haley. Yes, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are running against Trump, but they also both said that they would pardon him. They also both use MAGA phraseology. You saw Nikki Haley, in my opinion, sort of playing footsie with, uh, you know, Civil War denialism, Scott. It, would that actually be an anti-Trump candidate if either one of them even can catch him. Uh, well, well, that's what I say. I, I think both of these guys are both uh, DeSantis and Haley are, are running in the the MAGA accessible space. They don't want to say anything here that will alienate Trump supporters. So if, if something happens to Trump uh, legally or or if his campaign falters, that that they would be ruled out. And Christie's different. I mean, he is banging the the anti the Trump tree and and you know, they're there with a basket waiting for the crab apples to fall, maybe for them. Uh, but 
Yeah, I, I mean, it, it really, I mean, clearly, neither DeSantis nor Haley has made a very hard, you know, tough anti anti Trump case. Uh, I I imagine privately they both think the guy is nuts, and and um, but they just aren't willing. They aren't willing to come out and say that because they want to, as I say, they want to remain acceptable for for his vote. So I think the Trump people have pretty much closed their mind to hearing anything negative about yeah. uh, about Trump. But as I say, I don't think that that, that necessarily is a determinative vote uh, in New Hampshire. You know, is it as we move south? Well, we'll have to see. Yeah, James, do you think that there is a non-MAGA lane in the GOP primary? Donald Trump defines this race, whether you're with him or you're against him. And then when you get into the machinations of, is DeSantis enough against Trump is Haley enough against Trump? You know, famously, this just a few days ago, she said that she still wouldn't rule out being his vice presidential candidate. But it's about math. You know, 40%, 45% of the party is with Trump. Uh, about 30%, definitely not. And then there's like, you know, another 30% that likes Trump and is ready to move on. And you cannot be the nominee unless you somehow appeal to enough of a group of folks. Uh, who are at least you know culturally uh, aligned with Trump, and so uh, it, it, you know is it a, can they nominate someone other than Trump? Yes, maybe that's the question uh, versus an anti MAGA. This is where the party is at right now. Our political panel continues after this short break. At Eastern Bank, we believe in good business. That's why we provide clients with a suite of products and services made to take their businesses to the next level. From express business loans to seamless cash management solutions, we make it easy to grow when the time is right. As a trusted full-service bank and the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running, we understand what you need to keep your business thriving. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com business. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlick Case. Available now. So let me step back for a minute and talk about New Hampshire as the first in the nation primary. That is something uh, that has been debated a lot, whether it should be, what uh, what actually does it measure. I, in full disclosure, I don't think that the, the voters of New Hampshire, as important as they are, are representative of the broader American electorate, both because they're so savvy, they're used to the candidates coming and making their pitches to them almost personally, but also it just, the demographics of the state don't reflect the rest of the country. Uh, I, I wanna hear all of you guys' thoughts. I'll start with you, James, since uh, you've probably spent more time in New Hampshire than anyone I know. First in the nation primary, how have you seen that debate play out, if at all, this this year? Well, it's been a huge topic, particularly because the Democrats tried to take it away. Look, New Hampshire is the sort of general election argument. Well, fine. This is a swing state. We allow independents to vote. You have both the base and independent voters working together. And together, those first two states winnow down the field. 
Then we have South Carolina, which puts a stamp on pretty much who the nominee is going to be heading into Super Tuesday. If you believe, as I do, that at some place, a person running for president who is a, usually a U.S. senator, a governor, someone successful in business, they live in a rarefied era. Who they talk to, who they text with, who they go to parties and vacations with, by definition, they are not everyday Americans. If you believe that we should have just a little bit, and we're talking about literally on the ground in these states, 30, 40 days, that they should have to engage and take questions from real, everyday Americans in a platform that allows the underdog and the little guy so the best ideas come forward, well, then you need a system like in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, that does have a create a playing a, a fair playing field versus a consultant driven or TV ad driven situation. Is Iowa, New Hampshire, particularly New Hampshire, been perfect? No. Is it racially diverse? No. Is it highly college educated? Yeah, it's one of the top in the country. It's the third wealthiest state in the country. Uh, there's a lot of ways it stands out. But if you want to talk about creating an open platform where we can actually have an open discussion about the future of the political party that they're discussing or the future of America, it's hard to do better than what New Hampshire's 100-year track record has done. Yeah, Corrine, what do you think? I want to go back to a point that James made about New Hampshire being more representative of perhaps a general election and what it would look like to build a coalition beyond just the base. And I think that that's why New Hampshire is so important to everyone but Trump. Basically, he hasn't really been as present in the state where, as you're seeing, Christie on the ground all the time, and he had quite a sprint a couple of weeks ago and pa packed function halls, cafes, diners. Uh, and, and you're seeing basically all the other candidates do that, except for DeSantis seems to be winding down. But I think for Christie and Haley specifically, they're trying to make the case that they can be general election winners. Uh, and, and for Haley, more than anyone, you know, in the Wall Street Journal poll that put her up against Biden, she won by 17 points. Trump is not that decisive by any means, maybe a couple points. So I think that New Hampshire, not just as a springboard for her campaign into breaking the narrative that Trump is the winner, but also to make the case that, look, I can win over MAGA voters. I can win over independents. I can even win over Democrats. I've talked to Democrats at her events who are not so sure about President Biden's leadership. They don't love Trump. They don't even love Nikki Haley. They just think that she's a unifier. And I think she's trying to prove that she's a unifier. Uh, so I think this is a great experiment for Haley and for the for the Republican Party to see what does a general election winner potentially look like? Yeah. So, Scott, and what your your thoughts as uh, on New Hampshire's place in this primary. But I, I also want you to include Democrats too. Of course, there is no sure, race yeah. in in uh, on the Democratic side. In fact, uh, President Biden is not even on the ballot in New Hampshire. How do you think that affects Democrats? Uh, I'm a big fan of New Hampshire. Although I will say, on the on the Democratic side, New Hampshire in the last X number of cycles has tended to fall in love with the candidate next door. Uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, obviously, uh, John Kerry, uh, Mike Dukakis. I'm on the Republican side, Mitt Romney, although I think he was the best candidate in the field. 
But that said, I am a fan of New Hampshire. I, I think it it's a small state that has a lot of different uh, a lot of different sort of venues and interests and and gets at a lot of things. There are very rural parts of it. There are high tech parts of it. There are less now than used to be, but kind of old economy um, parts of it. And you can test messages, and you can get a lot of different a lot of different socioeconomic segments of the population. A, a yeah a way to weigh in. So, but on the Democratic side, this time around, um, it's not much of a race here, uh, obviously, but I do think the Democrat, the, the DNC made a little bit of a mistake by sending sort of a, a, a shirty letter to um, the Democratic Party in New Hampshire saying, you know, how dost, how dost thou hold a primary? Well, we've decided you aren't, you aren't in the, the window. Um, New Hampshire has a tradition here, and there could be a little bit of a backlash there against Biden because um, the DNC, of course, is is Biden controlled. Mm, that's very interesting. Well, well, speaking of Joe Biden, James, he has been using this primary time uh, to do things like give big speeches. Uh, like he gave a big speech near Valley Forge about democracy. He spoke at Mother Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina, where that horrific shooting took place in 2015. He sort of trying to touch on bigger themes as opposed to taking on who his presumptive nominee, according to this conversation, will be Donald Trump head on. What do you think about that approach? Well, number one, he's only been doing that the last couple of weeks. He's been largely not campaigning at all or putting together any particular campaign, particularly as it relates to the six important swing states that are involved. Uh, Joe Biden is deeply, deeply, deeply unpopular. He could have been challenged from a primary from the left uh, on any sorts of ways. And he knew that that challenge would happen in New Hampshire. This is traditionally where that challenge it happens, where New Hampshire likes the underdog. They like the person to go against the establishment. So he says, huh, I'm going to pick the one solid state that I've got, South Carolina, to go ahead of that. Now, call me a cynic. However, that is actually a factual thing that just happened here. Uh, but mm. what is he doing? Again, I don't think he's doing enough for his reelection, uh, num number one. But also, I mean, what's so wild about this race going forward is that we're going to spend all this time talking about, and we've already done it, we've done it the last couple of weeks, is Joe Biden doing enough here? Tactically speaking, is the White House too controlled? Is he? Is his Bidenomics, is that a phrase that's working or we should get rid of it now? No, uh, we have much bigger issues going on. Uh, will Trump be convicted, number one? Number two, what role will third-party candidates play if they even get on the ballot? I mean, we have got other factors here in a very tight race, which are actually going to control things more than uh, a, a positioning or speaking at a speaking at this very important church in South Carolina or speaking about the future of democracy that actually probably will decide this race more. Can I just do a little follow-up, James? You brought up third parties. There's also uh, a, other, at least one other Democrat in this uh, race. Do you think that they could hurt Joe Biden? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think they are the huge X factor, among with other X factors in this race. I mean, Joe Joe Manchin's appearing in New Hampshire the week of the New Hampshire primary, uh, or I guess right before the New Hampshire primary. Uh, so he's sitting out there. But I don't know how many credible candidates there will be as a third party. Uh, but the math is the math. Um, and, uh, you know, we have no labels sitting out there. Obviously, you've got Green Party uh, sitting out there. Um, Cornell West, obviously running as an independent, their ability, one of the most important stories in this presidential race 
is their ability to get on ballots in these states, which is very hard, and then their ability to execute even in one or two states. So Scott, in a recent column, you wrote that it seems like the January 6th insurrection turned a lot of previous Trump voters away from him and towards other candidates. How do you think that sentiment will play out in New Hampshire and beyond even the general election? Well, I, I did. I talked to people. Now, these were people at a Christie event. Um, so they obviously were looking around for a different kind of candidate. But I, I was surprised when I talked to them in, in that the, some of them were you would you would expect that um, that sentiment of an undeclared independent voter. But uh, three or four of them were um, they were Republicans and uh, longtime Republicans. And they just said, no, I cannot vote for a guy who essentially fomented the storming of the United States Capitol. I will not do it. That was it. Uh, I'm done. So I, I do think um, that being a Trump supporter, uh, I think one of two things have happened. Some people said, wow, that was a break for me, or they have found an elaborate way to rationalize it all away. And the powers of partisan rationalization are absolutely immense. And I think that for most of MAGA, you're now, and you look at some of these polls, they're saying, well, hey, this wasn't, uh, this wasn't, you know, the FBI did this. And you remember early on, this was, some of them were saying, even Congress people were saying, this was Antifa. Uh, I do think it's the dividing line for a lot of people, but I think a lot of the a lot of Republicans, uh, conservative Republicans or Trump Republicans, uh, nationalist populist Republicans fall on the Trump side of that, and they are willing to rationalize it away. But I do think that for other people, it, it's so, uh, you know, the traditional, traditional Republicans, many of who are quiet as church mice when it comes to elected officials, but uh, in the grassroots, I think a lot of those people said, hey, that's it with me and Donald Trump, and they're looking around for someone else. Green, what have you been hearing on that front, especially now that we have challenges to Trump's very uh, eligibility to be on the ballot, uh, challenges that have reached the Supreme Court? What are you hearing from voters about that? I think that that's only energizing MAGA voters who, you know, as Scott pointed out, are able to rationalize his trying to violate the Constitution, uh, his trying to rule the party uh, with an iron fist. I think that this just only energizes them further and, and gives them another reason to say, hey, look how the establishment is out to get us. Um, but there are also a lot of tired Trump voters. And I've met a few at Haley events mostly who like that she doesn't openly bash the president, but that she is an alternative that hits on some of their policy goals and also comes with less baggage. So I do think that there is a movable aspect of the Trump voter base. And a lot of them will tell me, you know, I really like what President Trump did when he was in office. Uh, I'm tired of his antics on stage. I'm tired of what he says on Truth Social, but I like what he got accomplished. The pull between the frustration of Trump's antics and also the frustration with establishment attacks, as they'll call it, like, you know, Maine taking him off the ballot, things that they see as an overreach and very might well be an overreach. This has to go to the Supreme Court, of course, um, and probably will. But I think that they're pulling between those two things right now and trying to decide, is it worth sticking with our guy um, because the establishment has been unfair to him? Or is it worth moving on with somebody who might help us achieve some of the goals that Trump helped us achieve um, without all the baggage. Yeah. There's something that Scott and Cream both said that 
it reminds me of this point. You know, sometimes it's not what people are saying. It's sometimes what they're not saying. So let's go back. When you have an incumbent president, Joe Biden is running for re-election. Uh, the party out of power usually focuses or has a heavy conversation on one thing, electability. Joe Biden last time, it was all about who can beat Trump. That's all. That was the number one issue more than the economy or anything else. Before that, it was Mitt Romney. Yeah, well, who can beat Barack Obama? Mitt Romney's like, I have the ability, you know, whatever. He was the dominant frontrunner throughout that whole race. John Kerry in the 2004 race, remember, we dated Dean and then we married Kerry because he was the one who could be electable, okay? What we are not talking about at all is electability. So when Corrine mentions that, you know, here's Trump or your question, possibly getting off ballots, which there's no way the Supreme Court's going to kick him off. But nonetheless, the fact that we're even having this conversation and the fact that Nikki Haley is up by, depending on what poll you look at, you know, Joe Biden, I mean, is losing to Donald Trump by like three or four points. Uh, if, but he's losing to Nikki Haley by 11 or 17 points in one particular poll. And the fact that that's news to a lot of listeners is a dramatic departure from pretty much every single campaign, from dog catcher that has an incumbent to governor that has an incumbent to a president that has an incumbent, which is one more example of how this race is so deeply unusual. Electability is the word of the day, delivered by James Pindle, political reporter here at the Boston Globe. Also joining me today was Kareen Hajar, an opinion writer at the Globe, and Scott Lehigh, who is an opinion columnist and a novelist. His first novel is called Just East of Nowhere, and it was just published. Thank you all for joining me on Say More. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kusmer with help from Scott Helmet. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Uzair Ahmed. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also email us at saymore at globe.com. I'm Kim Atkins-Store. Thanks for listening.